This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Coming up on today's show, a huge, huge piece of legislation just passed in the United States. It's the Inflation Reduction Act. How that might affect Alberta with Markham Hislop. Do we want streetlights spying on us? They can. And we'll talk about an upcoming mission to the moon. Last week, a week ago today, in fact, Joe Biden signed uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. It was seen as a big victory for the Democrats. It's a massive, massive, massive piece of legislation, and it covers all kinds of things. Um, it's you Remember the Build Back Better bill? Dumb name, but that's where they sort of started. Didn't get it done. Didn't work. Uh, they sort of reworked it, focused it on some new areas, came back with the Inflation Reduction Act. And they got it passed. Uh, it does all kinds of things. Like I say, it includes um, a 15% corporate minimum tax rate. So any business has to pay a minimum of 15% in the United States. Um, taxes on individuals and households don't change. Uh, prescription drug price reform is one of the things in there. So they're going to negotiate on the price of prescription drugs and bring down the price. Um, tax enforcement, the IRS is going to be ramped up. It's going to extend um, Affordable Care Act subsidy extensions, the Affordable Care Act, of course, dealing with um, medical insurance in the United States. And there's also almost a half a trillion dollars directed towards energy security and climate change investments. $369 billion will be spent on those areas. That includes all kinds of things, investment in climate protection and security, tax credits for households to offset energy costs, as we know about inflation going on, investment in clean energy production, tax credits aimed at reducing carbon emissions, electric vehicles are mentioned, all kinds of different things. So to walk us through what we can expect to see and how it's going to impact us, we're joined now by Markham Hislip, who's an energy journalist and publisher of Energy News. Markham, thank you for joining us. Appreciate your time. Good morning, Shay. You know, when we talk about almost half a trillion dollars being invested into the clean, into energy in any way, shape or form uh, by our biggest trading partner, that's going to have an impact on what happens here, isn't it? Well, it's really interesting that in the past week or two, the emphasis in uh, Canadian commentary on the Inflation Reduction Act has been all around the emissions, uh, the greenhouse gas emissions yeah. reductions. And and I've done a couple of interviews with American uh, modelers who say that about 40 percent uh, reduction by, by 2030. But I'm also because we do uh, U.S. energy journalism as well. I'm on a lot of you know mailing lists and so on from analysts, and and the emphasis down in the U.S. is much more on the industrial side of this. And the if you remember back in 2020 during the presidential campaign, Joe Biden's uh, campaign platform had a couple of paragraphs in where he said the United States is losing the clean energy economy race to China, 
and you know in electric vehicles and renewables yep. and manufacturing all these areas and he said by 2030 i pledge to put america back in the lead and from my point of view the the inflation reduction act is really uh, a culmination it's it's his response to china and the uh, opportunities that that will afford to canada in particular alberta i think is is really where we should be focusing our attention Interesting. Okay. So walk us through that. I mean, when you talk about what he's doing, there's also, there's that protectionism element to it, and we're trying to get car votes and all the rest. So how do you see Alberta being able to capitalize on what's in this bill? Well, you bring up an interesting point, because the the Build Back Better Act had, just as an example, an EV tax credit that was only going to apply to uh, made-in-America EVs. Completely, right? Well, that's changed. Yeah. Yeah, but that's changed. In in this act, in fact, it takes a much more North American view, and it says that uh, if you want to qualify for the $7,500 EV tax credit, that the uh, components and a percentage of whatever uh, components are in that electric vehicle have to be manufactured either in the U.S. or countries with which the U.S. has free trade agreements, and that, of course, is Canada and Mexico. So we're ideally positioned to take advantage of this act. Yeah, I mean, the new t- as you say, it's now more of a North American approach. But when we talk about the energy security part, what, what does that mean? What have you heard about what, you know, when investing in energy security and making the United States more energy secure, what does that mean, if anything? Right. A lot of that means uh, uh, developing domestic supply chains. So let me give you an example, just from the uh, EV battery supply chain. Okay. Uh, the amount of uh, that, the extent to which China dominates that supply, the global supply chain, is astonishing. So uh, over 80% of a few key minerals are uh, found, are. Uh, produced by China, 77% of all battery metals refining and process done in China. So if you produce lithium in Alberta, you pretty much have to send it to China to get it refined and then import it back in. Over 80% of cell components like cathodes and anodes that go into a battery are made in China. 75% of the actual batteries, over 50% of global EV manufacturing. And so what the U.S. wants to do is bring is develop all of those supply chains in North America. So if you're if you're Alberta and you're sitting here and you're looking at, uh, you know, we have lithium. We've got a couple, at least a couple of, of companies like E3 Metals and Summit Nanotech that have technology to take uh, lithium out of like oil and gas produced water and briny water. We, Alberta has that technology. So if you scaled that up. Alberta has a chance to play in that supply chain, but why stop at at minerals? Why not look at uh, building refining capacity in Alberta? Mm -hmm. Because it's not anywhere else. So if it's a, if the if the uh, uh, field is wide open, why wouldn't Alberta want to rush in and see if there's an opportunity to invest here and create jobs here and process the the, uh, the minerals here? Yeah, makes perfect sense. Exactly. Yeah. I, a little off topic, but uh, you, you, well, you're talking about this and sort of being a leader in terms of manufacturing these batteries. I'm sure you're up to speed on what's going on with Saudi Arabia. They're getting really aggressive in this space, aren't they? Well, sure. And they have the capital to do it. That's right. I mean, they're, they're talking already about, you know, they're investing in solar in a huge way. They're talking about investing in hydrogen in a big way. And uh, the time is of the essence, Shay. Now, I, was, I interviewed Dr. Kwesi Mpofo, who is Bloomberg NEF's 
uh, global head of mining and metals. And we were talking about uh, battery, uh, you know, building battery metal, uh, minerals, mining and processing capacity in Alberta. And I asked Quasi, I said, well, how long do we have? And I was thinking he would say maybe a decade, maybe at least to 2030, you know, for Alberta to build that up. You know what he said? Hmm. Three years. Wow. He said, if this industry is moving so quickly, and it's true of clean tech generally at the global scale, he said it's moving so quickly in places like Vietnam and Indonesia that want to get in on this space, that if Alberta doesn't move aggressively, organize, get its policy in place, get its capital in place, attract the, the companies or, or, you know, grow domestic com- companies, whatever the strategy is, but it has to no- it's not taking this kind of laissez-faire, laid back kind of, you know, we'll put together a roadmap in a couple of years and then maybe we'll get some, you know, we don't have, we don't have a decade. We don't even have five years. Alberta has to get moving. That was the message from from uh, Dr. Mpofo. Yeah, especially with the, the Saudis getting involved. Like you say, just the capital and, and, you know, the wherewithal to get it going. It will accelerate things a lot faster. Um, emissions, emissions, emissions. That's part of what's going on in the United States with this Infrastructure Reduction uh, Act, uh, talking about changing some of the emissions and, and, you know, wrapping it up by 2030. So how does that all fit in when we talk about trying to do what we're trying to do? The U.S., are we on the same path, Markham? Well, uh, this is interesting. A couple of uh, Canadian analysts have made the point that up until the, this act was passed, Canada was leading on climate policy by a fair margin, leading the U.S. But now it's flipped on its head. And, you know, the debate in Alberta, and you see it more in Alberta than any other province, the, the, the argument is we can't get too far ahead of the U.S. on things like carbon pricing because we'll put Canadian and Alberta companies at a, at a competitive disadvantage. Right. The, the Canadian analysts are now arguing, oh, hang on a second, that's now been flipped on its head. We're now behind the U.S., and, and Canada and Alberta have to get their climate policy frameworks in place. There's a lot more of it at the federal level as, you know, carbon pricing and so on. We, we've heard that debate now for, for a few years. But now we have to catch up to the U.S. And because capital is now going to flow, it is already flowing into jurisdictions where you have policy certainty. Policy certainty is really important. And you'll remember that back in 2019, Jason Kenney and the UCP tore up the existing climate policy. And there, and climate policy in Alberta has been very much a piecemeal kind of, you know, uh, no consistency to it. There really is no climate policy per se. And it looks like Alberta is going to have to, or it should address that uh, very quickly in the near term if it expects to attract the capital required to aggressively scale up and take advantage of these opportunities. Yeah, to that point, even when the latest climate plan came out from the federal government, uh, a lot of industry insiders in our province said, you know what, we just need something to work with. We just we just need the framework. We need the rule book, and we have that certainty. Uh, that's, that's the starting point. So uh, it's not just you saying that, industry saying it as well. Um, when it comes to oil and gas in the province of Alberta, you and I have talked about this before many times. It's about demand. When do we reach peak demand? When does the demand start to tail off? How long will this last? How does what's happening in the United States change that with the focus on EVs and really ramping up that and all kinds of different, you know, green energy initiatives that are going on to the tune of hundreds of billions of dollars. How does that change the timelines and the demand curves for what we do here in Alberta? 
Well, there's a fair amount of uncertainty about this, but I think it's fair to say that as the U.S. electrifies its transportation sector, that oil demand in the U.S. is going to drop. And of course, that's where we send all of our oil for export, right? About three and a half million barrels or a million barrels a day. The issue here is that the oil sands in particular have driven down their production costs. They're now, their break-evens are now in the $30 to $40 a barrel range. And the uh, change, uh, the improvements that the companies like Suncor and Sonovas and CNRL and so on are promising are likely to drive those down into the 20s, $20 a barrel or low 30s. So what's changed here is that the oil sands has, in the space of less than a decade, become a competitive barrel. It's no longer a marginal barrel that's profitable when prices are high. It can compete at low prices. And some of these companies, like Sonovas and and Suncor, have their own refineries in the U.S. So Alberta oil is going to be competitive in the U.S., for a long time yet. The problem in Alberta is that the experts I've interviewed say that part of driving down those costs, they're going to destroy jobs. And Ernst & Young, for example, did a study last year that was that estimated 50,000 more oil and gas jobs on top of the 40,000 that have already been lost since 2014. 50,000 more jobs would be lost. So even while Alberta oil is going to be competitive, it won't produce the kind of prosperity and, and jobs that we've come to expect in the past. That's, that's the problem for Alberta. It needs to move from that 20th century energy economy into a 21st century energy economy, and we're not talking about that new energy economy enough. Well, I mean, we always hear the politicians say that. I mean, just yesterday, Justin Trudeau was talking about how Alberta's expertise when it comes to oil and gas will easily transition into the new green uh, energy, but but you're right. We I mean we we don't see the jobs following. We don't see it happening yet. Well, yeah, that that's exactly right. And and uh, the Calgary Economic Development uh, Authority uh, did a, released a study last year, and it showed that the clean tech sector, and this is an area where Alberta actually already has quite a bit of strength. But it will create, by 2050, 170,000 jobs. Now, most of those jobs are going to be in Calgary and Edmonton. They're not going to be out in places like Wainwright and Devon and, you know, the, the, the traditional service center, uh, regional centers for the uh, oil and gas industry. And so there's going to be some change in the way the energy industry looks, where the jobs are, and the kind of uh, skills that are required, the kind of training and education that are required. This is a big, you know, the energy system is being disrupted on a global scale, mm-hmm. and, and Alberta is going to have to adapt. Now, in fairness, the industry and the, the government aren't totally oblivious of this, but there are already uh, uh, strategies in place, some policy frameworks. I mean, Alberta has begun to adapt. The issue, I, I think, is pace. Right. We just aren't doing it fast enough. And what's happened now is the Inflation Reduction Act is going to dramatically increase that pace. And can Alberta keep up? And can it, in order so that it benefits to a maximum you know, amount or extent, can it do that? That's the big question. Can it scale fast enough? Absolutely. And that remains to be seen. Uh, Markham, as always, appreciate your time. Thank you, sir. Always a pleasure, Shay. Thank you. That's Markham Hislop, who is an energy journalist and publisher with Energy News. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. 
Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. We're talking about surveillance. And um, we've talked about it before, right? And I think... For a lot of us, um, the assumption is you're being tracked. Your phone is keeping an eye on where you go and what you do and all that sort of stuff. And it's just, what? how far does this go? Who gets involved? Who's controlling? There are so many questions. We're going to have a conversation about something called, well, it's smart cities, but it's focused mainly on these new smart streetlights, essentially, that are being used in some American cities that are... I mean, they're the unblinking eye in the sky, pure and simple. That's what they are. They're, they're streetlight, but they do so much more than that. And like so many things, when we talk about technology, they start with good intentions. And the people who bring them in tell you it's only going to be used for the best of purposes. And then down the road, things change. And uh, that's what's going on in the city of San Diego. And, and, and as I say, some other locations. And it'll only spread. That's what happens with technology because, um, you know, it, it just grows. It just spreads. It creeps, if you will. So we're going to have a conversation about that with John Lawrence. Um, John is an author. And his latest book is Dream State, Smart Cities, Technology, and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias. Uh, he recently wrote a piece in the Globe and Mail on this about this very topic uh, based on his book, and uh, he joins us now. John, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Thank you. Um, let's just start. Before we get into some of this smart city technology, the fact is a lot of this surveillance is already going on, right? I mean, we, uh, we're, we're on camera a good portion of our days now, aren't we? Yeah, no, there's a ton of surveillance that um, your closed-circuit television and uh, video cameras all over the place in public space. And, you know, we can find a tremendous amount of information about individuals online. So that's the world we live in. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I think most of us have come to understand that, at least in some capacity. But but this is new. This uh, the, the essay that you wrote in Globe and Mail was kind of an eye-opener, I think. I didn't even know these things existed. Um, we're talking about tech that cities are already using in some instances. Um, smart streetlights, would that be the best way to describe it? Yeah, I think that that's the there's a broad category, and that would be a good description. Tell us how it works. I mean, specifically, we're talking about ones in San Diego, but they're in other American cities. So uh, how do they work? What are they? Well, so it begins with this push by a lot of municipalities to replace uh, streetlights, which were traditionally used sodium bulbs with LED bulbs, um, which use a lot less electricity. You know, they can be controlled remotely. They last longer. And the manufacturers... Um, in some cases, began to sort of add functionality to these um, new streetlights. Um, and this is what happened in San Diego. There was a subsidiary of General Electric that was promoting a product um, called City IQ, which uh, was a smart streetlight. It, so it, it was an LED light. Um, it had a sort of a carbon reduction um, sort of you know, angle to it. Um, but it also included some other um, elements. So it included some sensors that would, uh, you know, pick up sound from the street. It had a sort of a wide angle um, uh, video camera embedded in it. Um, and the city of San Diego's ostensible reason for installing these was carbon reduction and also to sort of monitor the use of 
uh, bike lanes in certain parts of the city and also to monitor these parking um, spaces. So that was, you know, a perfectly straightforward yeah. uh, objective. Yeah, that was the reasoning when it began. But of course, as so often happens with tech, it changed, right? And their use and how they were used expanded into areas that caused all kinds of issues, primarily around crime and police investigations, right? Right. So what happened is that the um, the San Diego Police Department um, realized that the cameras that were in, you know, on board these, these uh, streetlights could be used in um, investigations. So, you know, if somebody was assaulted on a street, uh, you know, they could access the video footage, which was stored for about seven days, I think, and, you know, see if they could find out, you know, more uh, information about what was going on. So it was it was recognized as an investigative tool. And, you know, the thing about the police is that, you know, they they look for information wherever they can get it. Yeah. And so when once it became known within the municipality that the police wanted access to these videos, um, you know, they, the city couldn't really refuse it because they're not legally in a position to withhold evidence that the police want for a criminal investigation. Well, that's the thing. I mean, is there anything wrong with that? Because like we, we, we talked about earlier, there are so many cameras. And if you watch any real-life crime show at this point, as soon as a crime happens, police go banging on the door asking for doorbell footage or if there's a convenience store, they want their footage. The list goes on. So, I mean, is is this really that different? So it's, it's different in degrees. Um, and so one of the things that's important is that the um, you know, there was a lot of concern raised. This was a big political issue in San Diego about, um, you know, kind of using these cameras, using the video equipment to surveil neighborhoods, right? To see yeah, what was yeah. going on. So in anticipation, not in criminal investigations, but, in, you know, just sort of, you know, kind of keeping track of things. And, you know, if you think about streetlights, I mean, there are a lot of streetlights in a city. And so, you know, so they, they, they have a broad coverage. Um, the, the city um, and the manufacturer, um, it's important to note, said that, you know, the resolution on these cameras wasn't sufficient to identify individuals that were down at the sidewalk level. But it was still considered to be something that was more surveillance-like than was desirable. Um, and the the lights also were tended to be installed in lower-income and neighborhoods with a lot of racialized people. And so the... The municipality and the mayor's office did not enjoy a lot of trust. It's a fairly polarized city, and this became a flashpoint. And as is often the case when it comes to technology, the policy wasn't in place when the lights were installed, and now they're trying to play catch-up and come up with some sort of rules to deal with this. And, and, and I mean, that's the problem, right? It, it's largely unregulated, and we try and apply policy after the fact. Yeah, and and <clears throat> there was... It, this really gets into the weeds of like municipal procurement, which yeah. is a, like a deadly topic. But essentially, what the city did is they did not reveal the full range of capabilities of the equipment to the public and to the decision makers. And so they they kind of you know, and General Electric is a San Diego company, and they wanted a sort of a, you know they wanted a big customer as a showcase customer, and so it was kind of presented in a certain way um, that 
uh, you know, that was very benign. And it turned out that it had these secondary uses, which were alarming to people. And um, and so, as you say, the city of San Diego basically had to, you know, they had to kind of turn them off for a while mm. and sort of, you know, go backwards and sort of fill in the details that they'd failed to sort of acknowledge to the public when they bought these things for, you know, tens of millions of dollars. And it's not just San Diego, right? It's been installed in other cities have taken this up. Yeah, so they, so I mean, as I said at the beginning, there are lots of different types of smart streetlights, yeah. and um, you know, I think that the the key differentiator is whether or not they have video on them. Um, uh, but you know, they, you know, General Electric was trying to sell these to lots of different municipalities and different cities are looking at, you know, LED streetlights and smart lights that, you know, they, that can be operated remotely. So it is definitely a thing that's sort of expanded into other um, cities. And, um, you know, and there are these questions about unintended uses and mission creep. Um, and I think that this, the San Diego story is really a great case study of yeah. what happens if you don't sort of fully inform the public about what you're trying to, you know, about the capabilities of these technologies. I mean, we have traffic lights. Traffic lights are an old technology. Everybody knows what they do, and they don't do too many things. They go red, they go yellow, they go green. They have, you know, they, you know, they have different cycles, but you know what they do. And, you know, these devices are more like your phone, your, you know, your cell phone, my cell phone sitting next to my computer, and it does like a ton of things, and I had no, I have no idea what most of them are. Right. Um, but in the context of public space, where you know people are, you know, could be observed, um, you know, without their knowing it, or could be overheard um, without their knowing it, this is a more serious. Um, it's a more serious challenge, and cities have to kind of be much more candid about what they're trying to do. Yeah, and have some policy and have the clarity before instead of trying yeah. to play catch-up. That's the worst problem. We seem to get into that all the time. Yeah, and I mean, this is the thing about... I mean, this is the thing about technology. Yeah. You introduce it. You know, you don't know what it's going to be able to do. That's right. Um, and so that's, a, that's kind of a given um, with just about every technology that I can think of. But, um, you know, there's a higher bar for uh, technology that's being bought by public entities like municipalities that are used in public space. Um, and, there, you know, I, what I argue in the book is that cities have to work harder to sort of figure out what those other uses might be and work harder to, you know, gain acceptance from the public who will be subject to these technologies. Exactly, yeah. John, fascinating discussion. Thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciate your time. Thanks for your interest. Thank you, sir. That's John Lawrence. Uh, John is an author. His latest book is Dream States, Smart Cities, Technology and the Pursuit of Urban Utopias, uh, talking about this smart technology. And, you know, I mean... Uh, at some point, don't you? I'm not saying it's right. I'm not saying it's the way it should be. But isn't the assumption? I mean, who doesn't have a doorbell camera now? And what convenience store? And what business doesn't have surveillance camera? You're probably on camera more than you're not if you're out in public at this point. But I guess the city installing it and saying, "Oh, we're only going to use it for this. We'll monitor." You know, if there's a lot of bikes on the camera, then maybe we can do something with bike lanes. And then it turns out they're actually surveilling what's happening down on the street.
switch gears though and talk about uh, something that you know we we do quite regularly here on the show. And really and truly, I should have uh, set this up, but I didn't. If if I had been prepared, I'd play for you the space intro. But I don't I don't have it ready. But we're talking about space. We're talking about a moon mission because next Monday, for the first time in fifty years, believe it or not, a rocket is going to blast off headed for the moon. And the first steps in a program that. Um, not only will see astronauts back on the surface of the moon, but long-term planning, astronauts uh, heading to Mars. So let's find out exactly what's going on with the Artemis program, if I'm saying that correctly. Ken Podwalski is joining us, the Executive Director of Space Exploration and the Lunar Gateway Program Manager at the Canadian Space Agency. Ken, thank you for your time. I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here, Shay. How are you? Good, good. Uh, excited to, for this conversation. Is, is it the Artemis program? Am I saying that correctly? Uh, you got that right. I mean, I do want to go back to the IKEA thing. Oh, yeah, but, okay. Uh, we, can, we can talk about the Artemis. Okay, hang on. Now, <laughs> as a director of the Canadian Space Agency Lunar Program, I imagine you're a very highly educated and extremely intelligent person, right? I think people might say some of that. I mean, what, I'm what not kind sure. of, everybody says that. What but. degrees do we have here, Ken? Um, I've got a master's in aerospace engineering. Okay, that qualifies. You don't, do you like Ikea or do you find Ikea to be very frustrating? I think you just need to know how to play the game. I think you go in, you follow the hours, you look for the shortcuts and you do what you got to do and you can do, you can do it efficiently. See, but I don't have the degree that allows me to look for the shortcuts. That's the problem that I encounter. (laughs) All right, back to the Artemis program. Yeah, it starts next week, right? The launch is next week. Tell us about this mission that takes off next Monday. All right. Well, I mean, I'm not going to say it starts next week. I think this is an exciting and uh, vanguard uh, milestone for that program. I mean, Artemis has been going on for a while now. Uh, So as you know, our U.S. friends uh, kicked off that initiative to go back to the moon. They pulled in the partners. Uh, They looked at the people. They looked for the people that they that they feel they work the best with. So that's the Europeans, Japanese and the Canadians, of course. And uh, the reason they like working with Canadians is because we get things done. Yeah. We have a, our legacy is very well documented. We, we're involved in so many programs. I mean, we got some bragging to do when it comes to our space program, don't we? Big time. I, I, I cannot agree more with that statement. We, we are fantastic go-to partners in space programs, right? So we don't have the big rockets, uh, but we've got a lot of other cool stuff in terms of the science we do, the Earth, Earth observation, the satellite capabilities, communication. Uh-oh. Ken, are you there? Sorry, you broke up for a second, Ken. I think you're back now. Though. Gotcha. Uh, oh, sorry. Did I cut out there? I'm yeah, sorry. you cut out for a sec, but you're back. Yeah, so, you know, with the with the space robot. Okay. Lost, Ken. Okay, <laughs> you, you're breaking up, but I think you're back. We'll try this one more time. If it breaks up, we'll try, try it again. Get, okay, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, so we managed to be, become a partner in the Gateway program, and we're going to have a Canadarm3 on the Gateway vehicle that will be orbiting the moon. Okay. So what we've got here is we've got Artemis 1 is going to be a big deal for NASA and for actually for our European friends as well because they've got a service module that's actually going to be carrying that that Orion module all the or that Orion capsule all the way around the moon and back. So these guys have their proving ground to be done and then 2 years after that we're going to actually have a Canadian astronaut, right, on Artemis 2 and that is going to be the furthest that any human has ever been from the planet. And that makes Canada the second international partner out there to go into deep space. Awesome. Amazing. Now, you mentioned Canada Arm 3, and we know uh, we've 
talked about the other ones uh, over the years and how you know it's been part of I think even stamps and coins and all kinds of things. Is that is that is that our thing? Is is it making these robotic arms? Is that what we're called upon to do time and time again? Well, I always go back to my potato salad speech on this, right? Okay. So you get invited to the party. People want you to come to the party for the reason, right? Yeah. The reason we get invited is we do the great potato salad. We do space robotics like nobody else, right? So that's what we're bringing to the table. Now, we're, bringing, we're going to do Canada Arm 3, but we've also got a couple other things going on in terms of programs, like we've got a Lunar Exploration Accelerator program, this LEAP program. So we Okay. We, we lost Ken again. Okay, you're back, sorry. Other... <laughs> Okay, Ken keeps breaking up. I put him back on hold. Sarah says put him back on hold. She's going to call him back, and we're going to try and get this set up. Um, yeah, it's pretty cool. The Artemis program, as we said, takes off next Monday. Um, and, and this initial one is sort of, uh, as Ken said, sort of, uh, I'm not going to say fact-finding, but they sort of, they're doing a loop around the moon coming back. But eventually, the ultimate goal here is to have... Um, astronauts back on the moon and then long-term, and I'm going to ask Ken about this if we get them back, um, in terms of putting astronauts on Mars and how these program is, is, is scheduled to roll out over the years, because I think we're two or three years away from, uh, astronauts actually heading to the moon, which we haven't done, believe it or not, we haven't had a mission head to the moon since 1972. It's been 50 years. You know, we, we put a man on the moon in 69. Uh, and then, you know, in 72, we still had missions that were headed out that way, of course, but we haven't gone back in, in some 50 years. So this will be the first time we've done it in a long time. And as he said, uh, this mission will have, um, astronauts farther out into deep space than we have ever had before. Okay. Let's get Ken back on the air here. Hi, Ken. I appreciate you sticking with this and trying again. Thanks so much. Yeah. Sorry about that. That might be my phone that, uh, that's, uh, that's copping out there. Oh, what happens all the time, that's technology. So listen, this this program starts with, uh, well, as you said, doesn't start. It's been, there's been a long lead up to this, but the, the first rocket takes off on Monday. And then ultimately the goal is to get astronauts on the surface of the moon again. That's in two or three years is the plan? Yeah. So basically what we'll be doing and, you know, the, the SLS rocket, the Orion capsule, uh, you know, what they're doing at the Kennedy Space Center in terms of the ground facilities and infrastructure, what the Europeans are doing in terms of the service module, what the, uh, you know, the group of international partners are doing with the gateway vehicle that will be orbiting the moon. This is all about putting together an infrastructure right. that allows humans to go back to the moon in a sustainable way. So right. to go there, spend time there. And as we go and spend time there and we learn how to live in deep space and how to, how to survive as a species on a different body, then you start getting into the conversations about, well, now let's use this to practice on how we're going to get to Mars. Right, exactly. Now, they're actually talking, part of this program is to build a lunar base, correct? Like, like you say, a, an operations base. Correct. So the, the gateway is actually going to be a vehicle flying around in an orbit around the yep. moon. And then from there, we'll be able to, you know, you have to think of it like a, like a staging ground, like, uh, like, like St. Louis was to breaking out into the West, right? Yep. And, and there's no coincidence, by the way, that the, the symbol on the gateway uh, logo is an arch, right? It's, the, it's, that, it's that gateway to, you know, to, 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 the next, to the next land, if you will, right? So if you've got a staging ground where you can bring together all your supplies and your vehicles 
and configure yourself there and then go down for surface missions, it then becomes a much more practical approach to actually being able to build up an infrastructure on the lunar surface. And now we start talking about habitats, we start talking about rovers, we start talking about ideas like growing food there. Okay. And so all this in the idea that if you can do that on the moon, well, then we've got a credible proving ground for how we would do it when we want to go to Mars. So it's, it, we're not at a point where we're saying, okay, so we'll do this by 2024, 25, we'll start this project, and then by even 2050, we'll have somebody on Mars. It's all sort of, we're, it's taking steps in that direction, and that's the ultimate aspirational goal. You got it, Shay. Gotcha. Okay. Now, the question we often uh, like to ask when we talk about all these space missions and people always say, so what? What do we get out of this? We, there's huge benefits to us down on Earth because of previous space missions. We can talk about the Canada arm, things like that. But what we discover and what we learn through this kind of space exploration pays off for all of us, right? I absolutely agree with that. I can't make that point any stronger. I think... When it comes to, and I mean, I'm going to use myself as an example here, right? And say, you know, all I ever wanted to do was work on these space projects and do the things that I do, right? And I get to make, I get to make statements like, you know, I help build space stations. Um, that, to me, was an inspiration. It, it drove me into higher education. And when we get on board with these programs and we, we go for these lofty goals, we drive ourselves as a nation forward right. because... Our youth wants to get into these STEM programs. They want to do cutting-edge stuff. They want to innovate, right? When we put this out to our industry, and industry has to deliver design solutions that meet very tough requirements, really tough stuff, right? This drives them to come forward with new solutions, new technologies, and it doesn't just apply to space. A lot of this stuff spins off to, you know, day-to-day -day electronics and tools that we use, right? Um, this is this is how we push things forward. This is how we evolve, and this is how we come become more and more capable as a nation. And then when I step out to the big picture and say, if as a species humanity is going to Mars, right? People will ask the question and say, should Canada be there? And the answer has to be yes. We deserve to be there. We've earned our place there. Right. Yeah. So why wouldn't we do it? And, and build on, as you say, that proud history that we have. And, you know, like you say, it translates that technology. I mean, I was reading something where, you know, some of the technology we've been talking about, the Canada arm, and, and how influential that's been. And some of that same technology that was developed for use in space is now used to do robotic surgeries down here on Earth. That's an absolute true statement. So, I mean, a direct translation to... What's the payoff? What is it? Well, that's the benefit right there. Um, we'll continue to follow this mission along, Ken, and check in with you as it as as it develops and see how things work out. Excellent. I look forward to those conversations. Hey, I got one more thing for you. Yeah, go ahead. Um, my wife and I have family out in Alberta, so a big shout out to the Podwalskis and the Lipkis and the Dungans out there. Okay. Where are they in Alberta? Do you know. Uh, I've got family in uh, in Edmonton, and my wife has family in, or so I have family in Calgary, my wife has uh, family in Edmonton. Gotcha. Okay. I hope they're listening. Thanks, Ken. All right. Thanks very much, Jay. Talk to you later. That is Cheers. Ken Podwalski. Ken is the Executive Director of Space Exploration and the Lunar Gateway Program Manager at the Canadian Space Agency. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts, and if you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.